Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to this very special Medical Grand Rounds. Special because it is the Margot Krasnov Memorial Lecture as well. And we're delighted to have Dr. David Katz with us and he'll be introduced in just a moment. A couple of pieces of housekeeping. There is a sign-in for the CME credits today. The number is 5, small a, small e, 7. So that's what you text for your credits and that'll be up here later if you don't remember those numbers. I want to thank our culinary medicine program and the Cook, Eat, Learn piece of that for this morning's discussion about healthy plant-based diets. I hope you had a chance to partake of the bean cake breakfast and there were menus and uh, tips about healthy eating for vegetarians, nutrition and healthy eating that were out there. Without further ado, I'd like to have Dan Stadler join me to talk to us a little bit about Margo Krasnov. Dan is a geriatrician, one of our internists. He is an assistant professor of medicine and of community and family medicine. Dan, would you come talk to us about the Margo Krasnov Memorial Lecture? Thank you. Good morning. Um, like many here, Margot Krasnov uh, was my colleague, my mentor, and my friend. Um, anyone who knew her, who knew of her, who just knew of her accomplishments, learned very quickly that, that here was a, a person with an extraordinary commitment uh, to medicine, to education, to the uh, underserved, and overall to just making the world a better place. Um, she was also deeply, deeply committed to this, this community and this institution. Uh, though, though born in New Jersey, when she came here first for her undergraduate studies at Dartmouth College, uh, she evidently learned instantly that this, is, this was her true home and never left. She completed her medical school here, her residency at this institution, and it was a life of spent the rest of her career with a few years exception in Buffalo. Um, uh, as a member of this faculty. Um, and everybody in this community uh, lost something extraordinary uh, when she died in a freak accident in, in 2015. Um, I have a lot of memories of Margot, but the one that stands out was not a particular event, but one that we saw week after week after week um, at our Thursday noon conference uh, over lunch. And it was, um, Margot quietly, but not totally quietly, pulling out her cutting board and her chopping knife and her green peppers and her carrots and slicing them as somebody or other was giving a lecture. And you just do this little tap, tap, tap of the knife on the cutting board um, because of her profound, profound commitment to, to lifestyle, to diet and exercise as, as the way to change um, to change the trajectory of health, to promote well-being, and to uh, build physiologic reserve. And she lived that and taught that in everything she did. And so when she died, this fund was created by her family and friends to, to give a lecture to promote those very, very those principles. Um, and so I think it's entirely fitting that we do that today. Margot's family is not available to be here. Her mother has now moved to California. Uh, to live closer to her son, Margot's brother. Um, but they've asked me to express their appreciation uh, for the many generous contributions uh, from friends and colleagues that have made it possible for us to be here today. Uh, and now I'd like to uh, ask Liz Bradley to come up and introduce uh, Dr. Katz. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Um, I'm honored to introduce our Medicine Grand Rounds Lecture for the Margot Krasnov Memorial Lecture. Dr. David Katz is a founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, immediate past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and founder and director of True Health Initiative, which established to help convert what we know about lifestyle as medicine into what we do about it in the service of adding years to life and life to years around the globe. Dr. Katz 
earned his BA from Dartmouth College, his MD from Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and his MPH from Yale University School of Public Health. He completed sequential residency training in internal medicine, preventive health, public health, and received two honorary doctorates. He holds five US patents, over 200 scientific articles, textbooks, chapters, 15 books to date, and multiple editions of leading textbooks in both preventive medicine and nutrition. He's globally recognized in nutrition, weight management, and prevention of chronic disease. And he has a social media following of over 670,000. Let's welcome Dr. David Katz. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> It's a privilege and an honor to speak in Margot's memory and to address a topic that obviously was so important to her and that she represented so well in this community. So I hope I take up the mantle appropriately and make the case that we are not clueless about the basic care and feeding of homo sapiens. So on the menu in the little while we have together this morning is a discussion about what food can do a consideration of what food can do it, the choices we have, the voices we must use and the voices we must overcome, and then ultimately what we can do about the fate of our patients and maybe even the planet by rallying around the common ground of knowledge in this space. We begin with a consideration of what food can do. And the, the case here really can't be overstated. Ultimately, the proposition for us as clinicians is to add years to lives and life to years. That combination, the pursuit of some fusion of the prospect of longevity and vitality between here and there is the mission we've all signed up for. And of course, ultimately, there is a step beyond the pursuit of health, and one that we maybe often neglect and maybe an important consideration in discussion of diet in particular. Because food is a source of pleasure. So food is a, an, an important aspect of everyone's daily routine. And it may be that the overlay of a moral imperative impedes our progress. So the idea of a clinician with an admonishing finger, don't you realize you should eat well because it's so important. Maybe that loses sight of something extremely important. And, and I have the sense, that not knowing Margot, but, but looking at that glint in her eye and that lovely picture, I have the sense that she would endorse this. Healthy people have more fun. Health is in the service of fun. I think we forget to talk about that. I think we forget to make that case that, that ultimately when we consider what food can do, food can provide pleasure that it just does, but contribute to the pleasure of good health. Healthy people have more fun, all things being equal. And so our common mission, the pursuit of health, is ultimately in the service of giving people lives they will enjoy more. If not for that, then what? I think that's really what it's about. So that's part of what food can do. But as clinicians, we're probably interested in the cold, hard epidemiologic data. And that case begins, I think, in 1993, if not earlier, with this publication in JAMA by McGinnis and Figge, Actual Causes of Death in the United States. The, the seminal importance of this paper is that it argued that in 1993, all of the chronic diseases we routinely list, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, etc., stopped being leading causes of premature death in the United States, because they never were. They were never causes at all. They were effects. And what McGinnis and Figge did in this paper was examine the root causes of the chronic diseases that in turn populate death certificates and are the proximal explanations for premature death and chronic misery leading up to it. They enumerated a list of 10 factors which collectively accounted for all of the premature deaths that happen each year in the United States, but for a rounding error. And the full list is very interesting and includes things that the body politic needs to wrestle with, like, for example, guns in our society, 
uh, and cars and sexual behavior, exposure to environmental toxins. But for our purposes this morning, and particularly in honoring Margot's memory, it's relevant that 80% of the impact was clustered in just the first three entries on this list of 10 factors. And those first three entries, and this was a characterization of the epidemiologic landscape in 1990, those first three factors were tobacco use, poor diet, and lack of physical activity. 80% of the premature deaths that were happening every year in the United States as of 1990 were attributable to bad use of feet, forks, and fingers. And the only problem with this revelation is the vintage. We want fresher data, but it proves not to be a problem. Ten years later, Ali Magdad and others at the CDC reanalyzed this issue, reaching substantially the same conclusion. All that had really changed in the span of the decade is that the gap between tobacco as the number one cause of premature death and the combination of bad use of feet and forks as number two had narrowed. For one good reason, we were smoking less, and one not so good reason, deteriorating use of our feet, degenerating use of our forks, worsening activity and dietary patterns, and worsening epidemics of obesity and diabetes. To show for it, this then was the state of our nation back in 2000, also getting to be an old vintage. But the news keeps coming in and reaffirming what McGinnis and Figge told us. 2009, Earl Ford and colleagues, again at the CDC, published results of survey research conducted among 23,000 people living in and around Potsdam, Germany. They asked these 23,000 people about four factors <clears throat> related to their health. Do you smoke, yes or no? Do you eat well, yes or no? Defined simplistically, and yet adequately as habitual intake of vegetables, fruits, and whole grains? Are you active on a regular basis, yes or no? And do you have a healthy weight, yes or no, by virtue of eating well and being active for the most part? They went on to compare the two ends of the spectrum. So they compared the folks who said, I don't smoke, I eat well, I'm active, my weight is fine, to the people who said, I smoke, eat badly, don't exercise, and my weight's not so good. These people over the entire span of the observation period at an 80% lower incidence of any major chronic disease than these people. Flip the switch from bad to good on any one of these factors and the probability of ever developing any major chronic disease goes down about 50%, but fire on all four cylinders and the probability of ever developing heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, dementia went down to stunning 80%. Now, I fully appreciate the mission that brings us together. And I don't mean to be presumptuous, but the simple fact of the matter is that any of us involved in the enterprise of health and failing to address the profound impact of lifestyle are at the margins of what matters. 80%, right there. There is no pill that can reduce the risk of ever developing any major chronic disease by 80%. There never will be any such pill. But lifestyle is exactly that medicine, and we've known about it since 1993 at least. We are obligated to advocate for this. Some of us to devote our careers to it, but those of us who don't still to be advocates for it. There has never been a Nobel Prize in medicine for any advance associated with the potential to eliminate 80% of all premature death and chronic disease. Lifestyle is that medicine. Anyway, if you happen not to like Potsdam for any particular reason or prefer your data fresher still, reaffirmations of exactly these findings, 80% reduction in the rates of chronic disease and premature death in a cohort study by Kavavik et al. in the UK a few years back, by McCullough et al. here in the US more recently still. And then, in effect, one of the most stunningly repetitive drumbeats in all of the peer-reviewed literature tapping out again and again and again the potential to eliminate 80% of chronic disease and premature death by making better use of feet, forks, and fingers. And these are just illustrative examples of the vast literature on this topic. I'd be happy to share more. It gets boring, but it does make the point that this is a steady drumbeat, encouraging all of us to take what action we can to advocate in this direction. And the beat of this drum reverberates to our very pith and marrow. 
to within the double helix of DNA. This study by Dean Ornish and colleagues enrolled 30 men with early stage prostate cancer amenable to watchful waiting. Rather than just watch and wait, though, and see if the cancer progressed and required treatment, uh, Dean and, and his associates gave these men lifestyle as medicine during that interval. They gave them optimal plant-based nutrition, routine physical activity, obviously no tobacco, and in addition, plenty of good sleep, stress mitigation, and encouraged strong social interactions. Or as I like to call this recipe, feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love were addressed. And I would argue, just having completed my tenure as president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, that is the six-cylinder engine of lifestyle as medicine. You fire on those six, after that, everything else is vanishingly less important. And so they did. And over a span of months, went on to study not so much the men, and not so much the cancer in the men, but preferentially the genes in the men with the cancer. And what they found is that the lifestyle intervention took 500 cancer promoter genes and dramatically downregulated their expression, and 50 cancer suppressor genes shown here and dramatically upregulated their expression. Left is before, right is after, red is off, green is on. This is what lifestyle did to gene expression. The power of lifestyle is such that it can refashion our fate at the very level of our DNA. We can, in fact, nurture nature. And this is not one study. It's a branch of the literature that is filling out rapidly. And so we know that we have transitioned from the height of our enthusiasm for the genomic age. And of course, we're still very interested in genomics and interested in what we might do with it in the realm of pharmacogenomics and nutrigenomics. But those paying attention are now much more focused on epigenetics, or epigenomics, if you will, because with rare exception, DNA is not destiny. We know those rare exceptions, sickle cell anemia, Huntington's disease, and others. DNA is not destiny most of the time. But dinner is, to a neglected degree, lifestyle, by altering the behavior of our very genes, is our medical destiny. And it can alter the structure of our chromosomes, too. I'm sure you're all familiar with the caps at the ends of chromosomes, our telomeres, the length of which is the single most potent predictor in all of biology of the length of life itself. And we can grow our telomeres with lifestyle interventions. And that's published work and includes, as an author, Elizabeth Blackburn, who for her work on telomerase won the Nobel Prize in medicine. We can alter the very structure of our chromosomes with lifestyle. And of course, we have a massive potential to throw the levers and switches of the epigenome. You know that the genes are a very small portion of our chromosomal real estate. Vast tracts of our chromosomes are the epigenome. And to make a point I made briefly last night, because I just find it so interesting, I trust you all know that the egg that created you was fully formed in the womb of your maternal grandmother. Because, of course, that egg formed in your mother's ovary, and her ovary formed in her, and she formed in the womb of your maternal grandmother. Where else? And the levers and switches of the epigenome influencing the genes in that egg, which is half of you, as mine is half of me, were thrown during that pregnancy by your maternal grandmother's weight and lifestyle practices and environmental exposures. Now, let's not pin too much on grandma. We can rethrow those levers and switches. The beauty of the epigenome is it remains forever malleable to us in ways that genes don't. We either have genes or we don't. But by changing the position of levers and switches in the epigenome through lifestyle, we can change what those genes do. But that process began two generations ago. For young people thinking about having a family, what a profound opportunity and what a great responsibility to think that my lifestyle practices will transmit across the generations. It's a fascinating age. So the master levers of medical destiny really are not the tools of our collective trade, not the stethoscope so many of us drape across our shoulders, nothing anyone carries through the corridors of a hospital, nor anything at the cutting edge of technological advance. The true master levers of medical destiny have been in the hands of all our patients all along. They're what any one of us manages to do each day with our feet, our forks, 
and our fingers. And I trust you know what Archimedes said about a lever, give me one long enough, I can move the whole world. Make no mistake, these levers are long enough and should long since have served to move the whole world of modern epidemiology and public health to a better place. But alas, we like to say knowledge is power, would that it were so. The gap between what we know and what we do with what we know belies that wishful thinking. So as we convene here this morning to honor Margot's memory, the gauntlet she took up has been passed to us. The challenge remains. A luminous opportunity to add years to lives and life to years has been lost these 20 years and more, not in translation, but in the want thereof, in the failure to translate knowledge readily at hand into the power of routine action. How appropriate to have this conversation in Margot's memory and how appropriate to have it in the very shadow of a building devoted to the translation of medical knowledge into practice. That is the challenge before us all. And it's a challenge we must meet because we've had too many years of bad news. The obesity epidemic, in spite of it all, continues to worsen. And in fact, when this issue of JAMA came out telling us that the trends continue to worsen even now, despite eight years of the first lady's dedicated attention and let's move and all the work so many of us are doing, I received a barrage of media requests to answer the question, are you surprised? How can it be? How do we account for it? And my answer was, how could we possibly expect anything else? Yes, those of us in clinical circles are fighting it. And yes, everybody wrings their hands about the fate of children succumbing en masse, not only to obesity, but to chronic disease at every younger age, in particular type 2 diabetes. But all the while, America just keeps blithely running on Duncan, don't we? All the while, we keep marketing multicolored marshmallows as part of a complete breakfast, provided they're fortified with 11 essential vitamins and minerals, and everybody seems to be okay with it. Where is the outrage? Where, among a nation of loving parents and grandparents, is the outrage that we are mortgaging the future health of our children for the short-term profits of big food. Where's the outrage? No, I'm not surprised that the obesity epidemic continues to worsen. We are the do-gooders, bailing with our pipettes. Meanwhile, big food is flooding the sinking ship with a fire hose. And the things I say to you, of course, are literally true. We're told every day, America runs on Duncan. You don't need to hear it from me, but truly, multicolored marshmallows as part of a concoction that we call a breakfast cereal. I don't think pouring milk over jelly beans exonerates them as a suitable breakfast for our kids, but we do it all the time. Most of what's in the kids' breakfast aisle is absolute junk. And many of those cereals have sugar in one form or another, often high fructose corn syrup, as a first ingredient. That's not cereal with added sugar. That's a box of sugar with essence of cereal to exonerate it. Huh? Where's the outrage? Overdue, in my opinion. And if it doesn't come soon, frankly, we're all cooked. The CDC has projected that should current trends persist, we're headed toward, by or about 2050, a 40% prevalence of diabetes in this country, almost all of it type 2, with 50% in some ethnic minority groups. So we have 28 million or so diabetics in the U.S. right now. 40 to 50% of us would mean 128 million. Anybody want to see that world? Anyone want to try to pay that bill? Consider what a mess this country is with regard to healthcare access and coverage now with 28 million diabetics. Can you even see a way to manage 128 million? Because frankly, I can't. We're cooked. And I mean that literally as a nation. The United States of America will be insolvent no matter what the policies, politics, or medical system of the day. We simply won't be able to afford it, and so it falls to us, like it or not, to make sure we put out the fire, because otherwise our goose will cook in it. And the answer must be lifestyle is medicine. And we got into this mess maybe for a fairly obvious reason. In essence, if you take this and you add this, you wind up with this. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry for the candor. And, 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 and this was true even before this week, but let's, let's move right along. So what I want to talk about, and apologies for any uh, offense, I realize we may not all be in the same political camp, but it's been a rough week for some of us. Um, we've been arguing about diet for a long time. Now, I don't know that we've been arguing about diet since the Stone Age, but our arguments about diet today certainly trace themselves all the way back to the Stone Age with the popularity of the paleo diet. So I want to consider some of the arguments for this diet versus that diet and try to make sense of it all. So this, I suppose, is the elephant in the room. And the simple fact is we're not in the Cretaceous anymore. We're not in the Paleolithic anymore either. And you can't eat mammoth. You can't eat anything our Stone Age ancestors ate because it's all extinct. We've seen to that. And I mean both the plants and the animals. And there is a rich literature on Paleolithic nutrition. There are wide error bars around everything we know. But we know quite a bit. And we know that none of what they did is accessible to us. And by the way, anybody in the room profess to eat paleo? Because I'll tell you why you're lying. <laughs> if you tell me you eat paleo, I'll tell you you're lying because you're here and not in the bathroom. Because our paleo ancestors consumed 100 grams of fiber a day. And anybody consuming 100 grams of fiber a day spends much of it pooping. You don't have time to attend lectures. And maybe you could be here for a few minutes, but you'd say, excuse me, and you'd have to bolt out, and then you'd come back. So anybody who really claims to eat paleo, I, I'll watch you make that pilgrimage several times during my talk. So you know, most people are just kind of faking it, uh, and the approximations are rather vague. But they ate insects. They engaged in high levels of physical activity. They consumed 100 grams of fiber a day. They had a wide variety of plant foods. They had a high intake of omega-3 and on and on it goes. And some of the specifics are very interesting. So of course, a lot of people wave the paleo banner because they like to eat meat. And frankly, I, I think our species does. We're constitutionally omnivorous. So we're going to talk about plant-based eating today. That's where this began on the corridor. And that was Margot's mandate to us. Perfectly legit, but we should concede that we are constitutional omnivores and have been that since before Homo sapiens was sapien. Right? Homo erectus, constitutional omnivores. So we like to eat meat. But those who wave the paleo flag to say, so I should eat meat today, are missing something very important. The flesh of grain-fed cattle, on average, derives about 35% of total calories from fat. Much of it's saturated, virtually none of it omega-3. It's nothing like the flesh of animals eaten during the Paleolithic. And those who study this diligently have done their best to approximate the composition of that meat with meat available today, and said antelope probably comes very close. About 7% of the calories in antelope steak come from fat, almost none of it saturated, and quite a bit of it omega-3. What we now refer to as fish oil is only that because we've domesticated it out of everything else. It used to be antelope oil and probably was mammoth oil. And there are a lot of interesting theories about our adaptation to these higher levels of omega-3, partly because Homo sapiens developed at land-water interfaces and we derived a lot of marine oils from fish and seafood, and we probably prowled the tidal flats as well and, and ate mollusks. But we also ate a very different kind of meat that was a source of omega-3 that it simply isn't. And I mean the long-chain omega-3s we now get from fish, EPA and DHA, because antelope and other ungulates do just what salmon do. They consume short-chain omega-3, and they convert it into EPA and DHA, and we get it directly from them. We are eating meat that is not remotely like our ancestral experience, so the argument that I'm paleo, therefore I'm having a hot dog, is pretty feeble and misguided. The other thing that's really important, and, and I'm privileged to relay this message from Boyd Eaton of Emory University. And, and those of you interested in the paleo argument, if you're serious about it and you've looked at the literature, you know that our modern understanding of the paleo diet begins in 1985 with that first seminal publication in the New England Journal of Medicine by Eaton and Connor. Well, this is that Eaton. So Boyd Eaton really has populated this literature for the past almost 40 years now, 35 years. Um, and is arguably the founding father of the modern understanding of the paleo diet. He's a good friend. Uh, we've been on the stage together. And Boyd has said, we are constitutional omnivores. I like meat. Homo sapiens like meat. Too damn bad. Too bad. There are nearly 8 billion of us. 8 billion carnivorous homo sapiens will destroy the planet. 
we cannot get most of our protein from meat. What we can do is learn from the Paleolithic about our native intake level of protein that might be good for us and then get it from alternative sources, plants. And of course, we're looking at alternative, alternative sources now with things like Soylent and Beyond Meat and so forth. It'll be interesting to see where that goes. But basically, the father of the paleo diet in the modern era has said, we must not eat very much meat. Doesn't matter what our Stone Age ancestors did. They were isolated, roving bands in a great big empty world. We are now a global voracious horde. We will devour the planet. And uh, if you're interested in hearing those words directly from Boyd, there's an online video of him saying exactly that at a conference that I'll mention before I'm done called Common Ground, sponsored by Old Ways. Anyway, most people aren't terribly interested in approximating the paleo experience. Anyway, it's just an excuse to eat pastrami. So I point out to you there was no Paleolithic pastrami. Anyway, moving into the modern era and the middle of the 20th century, our arguments about diet obviously continued unabated, and much of them now focus on this fellow, Ansel Keys, who for a long time was revered as a leader in epidemiology and, and you know, effectively ushering in the modern era of nutritional epidemiology, um, but is now as often reviled as, as the antichrist of our modern understanding. And the issue is this, he mostly engaged in observational epidemiology, famously the seven country study, and published studies showing that the higher the intake of saturated fat from the diet, the higher the rate of cardiovascular disease and premature death. Key's detractors say, yeah, but he cooked the books. He took out some of the data points and it's not nearly as clean as that. This is a long story well told by others. Uh, frankly, I, I will tell you I am in Key's camp. Um, so the argument in favor here is that there were outliers because of poor data. And he did what any good epidemiologist does. He cleaned his data set and reported only the reliable findings. This was not cherry picking. This was data cleaning. But still, the detractors would argue, no, not so. So you know, I, I leave you to pursue this as the spirit moves you. I will tell you that that I think he's got it right. And I will make the case with evidence before I finish in the next little while. But a lot of debate these days. But one thing we know for sure, Ansel Keys, who supposedly told us all to eat less fat, which, by the way, is never quite what he actually said. He really focused on saturated fat because he studied the Mediterranean diet, which is high fat. But if any of you can find any place, anywhere, anytime where Ansel Keys said, eat low-fat junk food and all will be well, I will give up my day job and become a hula dancer. Right? <laughs> and so he never said eat snackable cookies. What happened was, as so often happens, is that big food and big corporate interests dumbed down an epidemiologic message, a public health message, and said there's a way we can give the people what they think they want and we can profit massively. They think they want to reduce their fat. Let's invent a new kind of junk food. Let's put low fat right on the front of the package, and they'll eat it up. And we did. And then we failed to learn from the follies of history. And you know what happens when you fail to learn from the follies of history? You replicate them. So we decided we cut fat, and we all just got fatter and sicker. So we had picked the wrong macronutrient. And along came Robert Atkins first in the 1970s, and then again in the 1990s to tell us carbs are the enemy now. Let's cut carbs. And to give Atkins what little credit he's due, and I don't think he's due much, because let's face it, everything from lentils to lollipops is carbohydrate. The idea that you could lump that all together and reach a summary judgment is absurd. And while there are real-world diets promoting health that happen to be low in fat, there really are no real-world diets promoting health and longevity that are low in carbs. Yes, the Inuit have a low-carb diet, but the Inuit are not long-lived. They do not have enviably good health. They have low rates of coronary disease, per se, because of the high omega-3, but they're very prone to intracranial hemorrhage. They do not live long and prosper. It's not clearly a health-promoting diet. There are no real-world diets that are low-carb. And after all, all plants are principally carbohydrate. Low-carb means avoid vegetables, avoid fruits, along with grains and beans and lentils and everything that actually promotes health. But to give Atkins what credit he's due, nothing in that pan of his glows in the dark. It's real food. But the same thing was done to Atkins that was done to Keyes. This message was turned into garbage like this. At the height of the Atkins craze, every supermarket in the country filled up with low-carb junk food. So we had high-calorie, 
energy-dense, nutrient-dilute, low-fat junk at the height of the low-fat craze. We simply replaced it with comparable stuff that was now low in carb. And I actually did a segment for, I think it was 2020, at the peak of all of this, in a grocery store at the Entenmann's display. And these brownies are something very much like them. The first ingredient, the first ingredient, was partially hydrogenated oil. But hey, it's low carb. Never mind that it's a Scud missile aimed at your coronary arteries, it's low carb, so go right ahead and eat it with impunity. Anyway, Gary Taubes, the nutrition writer whom I suspect many of you know, looked at all of this and said, okay, so I think the public was duped. Um, you know, we cut fat, we didn't get healthy. Uh, maybe fat doesn't make you fat. And, and Taubes, writing the New York Times Magazine cover story um, in 2002, I believe it was, really helped put Atkins in the stratosphere. But there's a fundamental problem with Gary's observations. And I, I think he's very well intended. I know there are Taubes fans in the room. Um, I, I think he's a smart guy, and I think his intentions are good. But I think he looks at the world through a tunnel. And the significant thing that, that he overlooks is we never cut fat in the first place. We never cut fat. We have, we have food intake data from NHANES, and we have food disappearance data from the USDA. They line up perfectly. And basically, animal fat intake in the United States remained constant, while total fat intake went up because we consumed ever more vegetable oils, mostly in highly processed foods. We never cut fat. Now, did we reduce fat as a percent of calories? Yeah, but there are two ways to do that, the easy way and the hard way. The hard way would be to reduce fat intake. We're Americans. We don't like the hard way. There's the easy way. Just increase your intake of calories from everything else, and your percent of calories from fat goes down a little bit. That's all that ever happened. Anyway, Michael Pollan stepped into this mix and said, enough with the focus on nutrients, let's talk about food. But it was not to be, because we had gotten into a rut. This is Lydia Bazzano of Tufts, who published a study that made headlines around the world a few years back, comparing low-carb and low-fat diets and reaching the conclusion that low-carb won. But there were problems. The low-fat diet wasn't low-fat. They tried to reduce from the baseline of 34% of calories from fat to 30%, but it actually only went down to about 32%. In other words, nothing changed. And the low-carb diet wasn't low-carb because they discounted both vegetables and fruits. So it's low-carb except for the high-carb foods that are good for you. And so there was a significant change in the dietary pattern of the low-carb group. There was no change in the dietary pattern of the low-fat group. And the group that changed their diets lost more weight. This study might have been entitled a comparison of people doing something with their diets to people doing nothing. And doing something seems to be a little better. Because baseline diets are generally really bad. The headlines didn't say that. Low carb beats low fat. And around and around we go in an endless loop of time-wasting nonsense. And the latest uh, excursion around that cycle is the saturated fat shuffle, where we keep changing our minds about saturated fat. Who in the room thinks saturated fat has been exonerated and is good for us now? Good, an enlightened audience. Um, now, to, to be clear, and we don't have a lot of time for this, but saturated fat is a very diverse class. They're not all created equal. And we know for sure that stearic acid, which is predominant, for instance, in dark chocolate, is innocuous. It's not inflammatory. It's not atherogenic. Much the same appears to be true of lauric acid, which is the predominant saturated fat in coconut oil. No evidence, by the way, that either of these, stearic or lauric, is beneficial, but they may be innocuous, as opposed to palmitic and myristic acids, which are clearly inflammatory and atherogenic. But the, the, the big issue our society seems to be dealing with in this space is, is sat fat good for us now? And those who claim it is are citing this study from 2010, a meta-analysis by Siri Torino et al., which compared the low and high ends of saturated fat intake in the US population and the corresponding rates of heart disease, and found that across the, the range of saturated fat intake that prevails in the population, rates of heart disease are high and constant. Therefore, saturated fat is good for us now. Anybody study logic? I actually took logic here at Dartmouth many years ago. I don't get that connection, but in any event, that's what the study showed. Across the range of sat fat intake in the US population, everybody has the same high rate of heart disease. Okay, Hold that thought. People also cite the 2014 Chowdhury meta-analysis, Darius Mozafarian, the dean at Tufts Nutrition School, uh, was the senior author here. Same exact conclusion. 
across the range of sat fat intake, same high rates of heart disease. Now, oddly, this 2014 paper failed to address the question the 2010 paper said it should have. Ask and answer what's replacing saturated fat that might matter. Seems very odd that a paper four years later completely failed to do this. Now, what might you expect to find? You might expect to see in this paper that they, they looked at how, you know, how does saturated fat and sugar intake, how do they play off against one another, right? I searched the full text. And by the way, anybody actually read these meta-analyses? Of course not. Nobody reads meta-analyses, right? I mean, it's like watching paint dry. I read them because I had to. I searched the full text of this paper, full text, for the word sugar. I mean, it had to appear in the discussion, right? Had to. Not once. The word sugar in the study that you know, is claiming that you know, across the range of saturated fat intake, uh, heart disease rates are constant, therefore saturated fat is good for us now, the word sugar does not appear a single time in the entire text of the paper. Really quite stunning. Um, fortunately, we do have a study that looked at the important question, what's replacing the saturated fat? But if we were obligated to guess, if Americans actually did reduce their intake of pepperoni pizza, what replaced it, I know what we'd guess. We wouldn't guess lentils and kale. We would guess the snack bowl cookies we've already seen. Anyway, Lee and colleagues at Harvard asked and answered the critical question. First of all, they asked the question, OK, so we're talking about a range of saturated fat intake. How big was the range? The range was extremely small. And everybody's intake of saturated fat was above the recommended level by the American Heart Association. So in other words, if people have a high intake of saturated fat or an outrageously high intake of saturated fat, they're prone to a high rate of heart disease. Therefore, saturated fat is good for us now? Doesn't follow. But more importantly, Lee and colleagues and 120,000 people looked at, over a 20-year span, those who reduced their intake of saturated fat and replaced it with other stuff. And here's what they found. If sat fat calories were swapped out for trans fat calories, things went from bad to worse. Rates of heart disease went up. If sat fat calories were swapped out for sugar and refined carbohydrate, like snack well cookies, a wash. Equally bad, no difference at all. And I think, frankly, that ought to be the prevailing conclusion in modern epidemiology. There is more than one way to eat badly, and the American public is committed to exploring them all. <laughs> if sat fat calories were replaced with whole grain calories, rates of heart disease dropped significantly. And if sat fat calories were replaced with unsaturated fat calories from nuts, seeds, olive oil, avocado, fish, and seafood, rates of heart disease dropped significantly. In other words, and tell me if I'm wrong here, people, what we thought we knew before we decided that we didn't know what we thought we had long known, right? Nuts, seeds, olive oil, avocado, fish, seafood, really good for us. Uh, pepperoni pizza, not so much. Snackwell cookies, not so much. Uh, you know, really, all of this has been an enormous waste of time and causing unnecessary confusion. And, and the evidence in favor of the big picture here just keeps coming in. So this other study out of Harvard looked at all-cause mortality and its association with total dietary fat. And the basic message here was the higher the percentage of total calories from saturated fat, the higher the rates of premature death from all causes, the higher the percentage of, of total calories from unsaturated fats. And again, the usual sources would be nuts, seeds, olive oil, avocado, fish, seafood, and so forth. The lower the rate of premature death from all causes. And as I said before, we never cut our fat intake in the first place. It's not as if we experimented with cutting fat and proved that it didn't work. We never did it. We grew the denominator. So these are trends, as you can see, over decades. And our intake of fats and oils in that blue line went up. It's just that our intake of grain products went up even more. So as a percent of total calories, fat intake went down. But not because we shrunk the numerator. This is America. We don't like to shrink things. We like more, so we grew the denominator. So we ate more fat, but ate even more, more refined carbohydrate and added sugar, and somehow that didn't fix the obesity and diabetes epidemic. That's shocking, right? We're appalled. Okay. Anyway, if you're interested in looking at the dietary changes by food category over the last 40 years, this is really cool. It's a dynamic flow diagram. So rather than trying to write the URL, um, either wait till you get the slide or just Google American Diet Changes Vox. You'll pull it right up and it, it actually shows dynamically the changes by food category over the last 40 years and where we've gone wrong again and again and again. And we know why we ate more too, by the way. How many of you are familiar with Michael Moss? 
Michael Moss is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist. He has a great book out called Salt, Sugar, Fat. He's got a new one in the works called Hooked. And he wrote this New York Times uh, Magazine cover story, The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food. And briefly, what Moss described in this essay is that every major food company in the U.S. and around the world hires teams of PhDs, gives them functional MRI machines, and marching orders to engineer food people can't stop eating. When Lay's told us that you can't eat just one, it was a threat. And one they knew they could take to the bank because they had scientists behind it. They exploit something called sensory-specific satiety. They engineer food to be, in essence, addictive. And they, we, we needn't get into all the details of how they do that. But it's important to know, because again, where is the outrage? Our food supply is being willfully manipulated to undermine the advice we give our patients about portion control, to make it damn near impossible. Where is the outrage? Why aren't clinicians up in arms about this? This is direct sabotage. This would be as if there is a major campaign by industry to make sure people don't take the drugs we prescribe. I think we'd be outraged, right? There is a major campaign to undermine our lifestyle counseling, and it's not new. Somehow we failed to get the memo 10 years earlier. Four-part expose in the Chicago Tribune. They had three million pages of documents under subpoena at the time that the state attorneys general were filing a class action lawsuit against Big Tobacco. What does it have to do with food? Well, Altria was a holding company that held both Philip Morris and Kraft. Kraft and Philip Morris were corporate cousins. What these documents revealed is that scientists from Kraft and scientists from Philip Morris shared the functional MRI machine and played around with flavorants together. Why? The Kraft scientists wanted to figure out how to combine flavors so that people couldn't stop eating. Philip Morris scientists wanted to know what flavorants do we put in cigarettes to get young people interested early and hooked. That's pretty despicable stuff, but this is the history of food in America. And again, we haven't been paying attention. And then these days, everybody carries on as if they discovered the harms of excess sugar last Thursday. And the reality is we've had dietary guidelines in the United States for 40 years. And 40 years ago, the very first, in 1980, distilled down to seven key takeaways, number five being avoid too much sugar. It's been salient all along. It's not the message that's the problem. It's what we do with it. We just fail to use it. So we have known for the past 23 years and more that feet, forks, and fingers are the master lovers of medical destiny. With regard to fingers, nobody's terribly confused. We know that we shouldn't smoke. With regard to feet, we know that motion is good. But with regard to forks, we have a new way to eat right every day that throws everybody who came before under the bus and around and around in circles we go, leading our patients to ask, what to trust about food? <laughs> What did you think it meant? So we come to a fork in the road, and frankly, we need not remain befuddled about the basic care and feeding of homo sapiens. If we look without bias at arguments for or against low-fat diets, vegan diets, low-glycemic diets, DASH, diabetes prevention program, paleo, low-carb, Mediterranean, what really matters is not what we hear about every day on the talk shows. What really matters is not what makes these diets different from one another and why you should buy my book instead of the other guy's book. What makes any good diet good is what it has in common with what makes every other good diet good. And it's the olive in the middle, beautifully skewered by Michael Pollan when he said, as was posted outside, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And frankly, that same basic conclusion uh, runs through the 572 pages of the 2015 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee report. And then I mentioned earlier the conference at, at which I uh, shared the, the stage with Boyd Eaton. Uh, this was it. So about a year ago in Boston, Walter Willett and I co-chaired this meeting sponsored by Old Ways. And, and we had nutrition experts from around the world ranging from vegan to paleo and spent three days mapping out common ground. So just Google Old Ways Common Ground. All of our talks are videotaped and archived. You'll see our consensus statement, fundamental agreement. And here it is, by the way, punchline. Any diet that is predominated by minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, and water preferentially for thirst cannot go too far wrong. I mean, add fish and seafood if you want, add eggs if you want, add dairy if you want, eat some lean meat if you want, add poultry if you want, do or don't. That's the backbone of every good diet on the planet. High fat, low fat, who gives a damn? And I'll tell you in a minute why we don't need to give a damn. Protein sources, 
Well, this is a really fascinating chart from a 2010 study out of Harvard. Look at these substitutions. So if you replace high-fat dairy for fish, this, this is looking at relative risk. To the right is higher, to the left is lower. So moving left is good. Um, this critical issue of instead of what? Right? So high-fat dairy replacing fish, risk goes way up. On the other hand, if you replace high-fat dairy for red meat, go down one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, risk goes down instead of what is absolutely crucial. So dairy's better than the red meat most people are eating, but less good for them for fish. But then go all the way down to the bottom. How about if you get a lot of your protein from plant sources, the biggest reductions come then. Look at beans for meat at the very bottom of the chart. Right? And it's, it's something we fail to consider when we talk about eat this, don't eat that. What are you going to eat or not eat instead? And these substitutions are critical. This is a very compelling argument for more plant-based protein. And we have choices. We have choices for our protein sources. And again, big study out of Harvard, the usual cohorts, 120,000 or so people. The higher the percentage of total protein calories from animal sources, the higher the rate of premature death from all causes. The higher the percentage of total dietary protein from plant sources, the lower the rate of premature death. Now, is that because the proteins are different? No, it's because the company they keep is different. And if you're getting more protein from plants, It means you're eating more plants, it means you're eating more beans and lentils, and you're getting more fiber, and you're getting more phytonutrients. The protein could be exactly the same. That's not the point. The company it keeps is substantially different. We have choices for the economy. This was a study out of Oxford looking at the economic impact of keeping on the way we're keeping on and eating these animal-centric diets and the effects on the climate and aquifers and economic productivity, massive economic benefit of shifting to more plant-based diets. I trust you know that water consumption to produce beef is about an order of magnitude higher than the next closest thing among all foods. If only for the sake of leaving, their, leaving some water for people to drink around the world, we need to eat much less beef. And beef specifically. Whatever the other arguments might be about eating less meat overall, less beef specifically. The water costs are astronomically high. And by the way, um, very strong argument. Pediatricians in the room? This is medicine, I know, but we got some pediatricians. You know, I, I have five kids, and, and as a preventive medicine specialist, a lot of our work has been focused on kids because it's the best time to prevent. Um, and it's tough to make the case to, especially younger kids, you know, that, that they should care about the future risk of chronic disease. But what if we tell young people that every time they drink a Coke or a Pepsi, they're spilling 500 times that volume of water out on the ground and wasting it? 620 liters of water are consumed to produce one liter of Coca-Cola in a plastic bottle. Two-thirds to make the Coke, the remaining third to make the plastic bottle. The plastic bottles need to go, but the Coca-Cola is, is a travesty in a thirsty world. And I think young people would care about that. And, and where did that factoid come from? Marion Nestle's new book, Soda Politics. Um, there's a range, but it, it, at the high end, it's 620 liters. So what we eat and drink contributes to California's drought and our own. Right? We need, needn't look at California anymore with New England suffering the severe drought. Obviously, for climate, and I think this was a really neat article in the conversation, all these debates about meat, okay, the health effects, we could debate it, depends what kind of meat, but for the sake of the climate, greenhouse gas emissions, the world needs to eat less meat, it's pretty clear, and biodiversity experts make the same case because we're using up all of the ecosystems that foster probably the planet's single greatest treasure. It's native biodiversity, we're squandering it. We're squandering it every day. Um, But we don't have to choose. We have all these choices to make. We don't have to choose between having our cake and eating it too. I started out by saying that healthy people have more fun. Well, eating good food is also fun. Do we have to choose between good food and good health? And I would argue we don't. We can love the food that loves us back. And this is just one example of it. This is from my wife's recipe site, Quizinicity.com, which to all of you as clinicians, and possibly people who cook for yourselves and your families, I commend you, it's free. It's the Katz family greatest hits. Catherine, by the way, is French, grew up in southern France. It's inspired by French Mediterranean cuisine with a very strong plant-centric shift now. Um, we have five children. She's cooked for all of us. She also has a PhD in neuroscience from Princeton. And when we got to kid number four, she stopped doing neuroscience, but applied that scientific acumen to re-engineering recipes, making sure they satisfied her fussy French foodie palate while also satisfying my fussy demands for high nutritional standards. And the results are things like this incredible chocolate lava cake, which is vegan and has six ingredients. Dark chocolate, black lentils, walnuts, 
medjool dates, sweet potato, and flax meal. That's it. There's no added sugar. The only sugar in this comes from the dates and the dark chocolate. It's spectacular. It's delicious. It's incredible. Uh, the nutritional profile is amazing. The recipe's on the site. Try it out. It's easy to make, too. Uh, we can have our cake and eat it, too. You can love the food that loves you back. And I think that's a proposition our patients would readily accept. But as we move in that direction, we have to recognize lifestyle is the best medicine. We have struggled to get that medicine to go down. And Lord knows the last thing we need is more spoons full of sugar. We need a spoon to get the medicine to go down. And I would argue the big spoon is culture. Lifestyle is the medicine. Culture is the spoon. And I told you a little while ago I would make the evidence-based case that Ansel Keys got it right. And I'll come to that in a second. But the cultural examples we have of lifestyle working as it should come to us luminously from the world's blue zones. Those five places around the world described by Dan Buettner where people most routinely live to be 100 and don't get chronic disease. And what do they do every time? In Ikaria, Greece, Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, Loma Linda, California, and the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. They eat food, not too much, mostly plants. They drink water for thirst. and They often drink wine with their meals. They don't smoke for the most part. They're physically active. They get plenty of sleep. They're not stressed out, and they have strong social bonds. Feed forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love every time. Are their diets high fat or low fat? Yes. They're high fat in Ikaria, Greece, and Sardinia, Italy, where the fat comes from, nuts and seeds and olive oil and avocado and fish and seafood. And they're low fat in Okinawa, Japan, and Loma Linda, California. They're in between in Costa Rica. Are they ever high in saturated fat? Never. Not a single time. Not because they're trying to avoid saturated fat, but because these traditional diets emphasize wholesome foods that are natively low in saturated fat. They're not high in sugar either. They're not high in refined carbohydrate. They routinely live to be 100. They don't get chronic disease. They go to sleep one night at 102 and just don't wake up. They live long. They prosper with vitality. And they go gentle into that good night. And here's the evidence that maybe Keyes was onto something after all and evidence that we can turn the blessings of the blue zones into blueprints. The North Karelia Project began half a century ago when Pekka Pushka and other epidemiologists there said, let's try to use what epidemiologists tell us is associated with lower rates of heart disease because North Karelia, Finland had the highest rate of premature death from cardiovascular disease anywhere in the world. So they basically took Key's advice and they focused on reducing saturated fat intake, shifting from animal-centric diets to plant-centric diets and also encouraging people to reduce their intake of tobacco and salt to lower serum cholesterol and blood pressure. What happened? 40 years have gone by. 82% reduction in rates of heart disease and a 10-year average addition to life expectancy. They added years to lives and life to years, as predicted. It works exactly as prescribed at the level of an entire population. That's why I'm on Key's side. He never said eat snack well cookies, and he never really said eat low fat. But he did say the prevailing sources of saturated fat in the modern diet are increasing rates of heart disease. And he was absolutely right. And he never said things would get better if you replaced that with sugar and refined starch. So he should have been more explicit and said, what I mean is eat diets that emphasize vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, water for thirst, and things will get better. And when you do, they do, stunningly slashing the rates of heart disease. Why couldn't this happen here? Obviously it could. We got to the moon for three reasons. We wanted to go. We're an ingenious species. We agreed on where to find the damn thing. I think we want to add years to lives and life to years and maybe save the planet into the bargain. We need that same recipe. We want to go. We're still ingenious. But we have to agree on where to find the damn thing. And where better than Dartmouth to invoke a page from the playbook of uh, a good doctor, uh, namely Seuss, uh, who told us about this pachyderm with extraordinary auditory acuity or uncompensated schizophrenia. I've never <laughs> been entirely sure which. But anyway, Horton heard the who's that nobody else heard until the who's pulled their voices, pulled together, and all yelled at the same moment, we are here. And then, of course, they avoided the vat of boiling bezel nut oil. Everybody knows we're here. What they seem not to know is that massively, experts around the world in nutrition, epidemiology, public health, clinical medicine, sustainability, biodiversity, and even the culinary arts agree about the fundamentals of a health-promoting diet for our species. But they do, and I have proof. 
I have formed the True Health Initiative and invited the world's who's who to stand together and say, we agree. And by the world's who's who, I mean three former Surgeons General of the United States, including David Satcher, Chair of Nutrition at Harvard, the Dean of Nutrition at Tufts, Alice Waters, Mark Bittman, Sanjay Gupta, and the world's leading experts in paleo diets, Boyd Eaton, Mel Connor, Lauren Cordain, and the world's leading experts in vegan diets, Dean Ornish, T. Colin Campbell, Caldwell Esselstyn, Noel Barnard, all standing together with colleagues from 30 countries and saying, we agree about the fundamentals. Please visit truehealthinitiative.org, see if you agree to it. If you do, sign up and add your name to the chorus, because only in unity is there the strength to turn what we have long known into what we at last put to good use. Thank you very much. The time is late. Uh, I want to thank David. We're going to take a few questions for those who may have them. Any comments or thoughts? I'd like to start with one that you're sort of uh, ending with, and, and that is how do we work on ad advocating? How do we work with the new Congress and the new legislation that will happen, the new changes in Washington? How do we work as a clinician body, even through your organization, to try to make change to bring fruits and vegetables to inner cities, to change the culture? What's your blueprint for that? So, you know, obviously, and again, I, I, I recognize that in, in any room with this many people, there may be a, a divergence in political perspective, but for some of us, this has been a, a very difficult week. This was not an easy issue before. And I, I would say that this is very much like the situation with climate change, which, of course, is also a concern this week, that much more so, where there's an overwhelming consensus among scientists, but you can always find some rogue scientist who says, I disagree. And it's in the interest of the media to amplify that voice, because that's what they do. They comfort the afflicted, and they afflict the comfortable. And, and so it can seem like there's a lot of disagreement when there's very little. And so rallying around the weight of evidence is extremely important, more so than ever. So I think one of the things we can do is stop bickering with one another. I think it's really crucial that the scientific community say uh, it's not a choice between limiting our intake of saturated fat from pepperoni pizza or our intake of sugar from snack well cookies. We need to do both. And everybody paying attention knows we need to do both. And we need to stop acting as if there's a debate between the two. So I think we give cover to the proponents of profits from the status quo by seeming to disagree. And I, I routinely hear in my world, no two nutrition experts agree about anything. No one nutrition expert holds the same opinion for 20 minutes at a stretch. The dietary guidelines keep reversing themselves. And none of it's true. There's massive consensus among experts around the world. Most of what we're saying now, we were saying 40 years ago. And the dietary guidelines have evolved, but they've never, they've never really renounced any of the fundamentals. That's critical. And then I think the other key issue, which is that we, we make the case that there are multiple lines of argument. So for example, that article in the conversation that said, even if there are debates about the role of meat in a diet for human health promotion, and frankly, there really aren't, but let's, let's concede there could be, there's no debate about the impact on the environment, the water cost. We need to eat less beef for that reason. So we actually have confluent lines of evidence. As I said, we have choices related to our health and the environment and water and greenhouse gas emissions. They all point in the same general direction. So there's a, there's a massive argument. And I think if, if we amplify one another's voices consistently and we propagate that among clinicians and do what clinicians do, which is teach our patients to care about those same things for all these same reasons, then all of a sudden we become a force to reckon with, right? And you know, ultimately, Congress is accountable to us. They're supposed to be in democracy. In follow-up, you know there was a Dartmouth-connected Surgeon General who did a lot to remove tobacco from our adolescents and our population. Where's that voice? Well, I actually think Vivek Murthy, our current Surgeon General, who, by the way, was a student of mine at Yale, I know him quite well, is a really good guy. Um, and, and so we, we have three former Surgeons General on the True Health Initiative lending their voices, David Satcher, Rich Carmona, and Re Regina Benjamin. Um, alas, Dr. Koop is not available to contribute to that cause, otherwise I suspect he would. 
Uh, to some extent, the position of the Surgeon General is, is more and more constrained by politics. They're less able to say the things they want to say. Uh, it's a problem. Uh, you know, I, I think Chick Coop, to some extent, was able to push against that. David Satcher was. It may be a product of their character, their oratory. Also, to some extent, it was they were a product of their times. And it, it's getting harder and harder. The Surgeon General now is clearly on our side. Now, of course, the Surgeon General serves at the pleasure of the President. So what will the next Surgeon General stand for? It, it, you know, that, that's another cause for worry. I mean, we may, we may be hopeful that we don't hear too much from the next Surgeon General who's going <laughs> to tell us all that we should ignore issues of climate change. Um, so that voice is in the mix. Uh, but to be quite honest, I think given the political constraints, there may be more power in the voice of a former Surgeon General who can point to the imprimatur of that office, say I held it, and now that I no longer do, I can tell you what I really think, than in the voice of the current Surgeon General. Because I think there's a lot that Vivek would like to say that he's probably not been at liberty to say. David, I know that the hour's late. I'm going to invite you to come up front and ask your questions here. Thank you so much for being here and being here for the Margaret Cosmic Lecture.